Okay, friends, Greg Kokel here, Stand a Reason, last broadcast of the year. Is that right? Yeah, that's right, because we are taking Christmas to New Year's off and a uh, little rest for everybody. Is that right? Oh, yes, we have STRS, of course, um, Amos and I, Famous Amos I, put those things uh, up We for the future. We did a lot of these extra ones, so that will be coming to you during that week, but um, those are easier for us to do, uh, 25 minutes roughly <laughs> per question. I'm chuckling now because we just did a bunch of shows this morning. It was like one question per show, but they were great questions, and this is characteristic of the STR-esque. Um, and so, and many times there are things that, that are nuanced in a number of different ways. We want to be careful to be clear so people understand the points that we're making and the reason we're making them and hopefully expand your understanding. We don't want to just give simplistic answers unless simplistic or simple answers are adequate. And sometimes that's the case is, uh, you know, tithing in new Testament practice. No <laughs> next. <laughs> of course we have to give our reasons why that's the case, but some, uh, have a lot of different elements to them. And, and, and part of what we do, Amy and I together is we, we, we take this issue and when, then we parse out the elements and put them in proper perspective and then kind of, it's like we take it apart and then we put it back together and then reassemble it in a way that is so, uh, so much more robust in your understanding that the answer becomes obvious or apparent. Um, anyway, how did I get off on that? So that's STR-esque. So if you don't listen to that, you, you ought to. And in fact, I think uh, in January, we have a, a show schedule where we'll, we'll be doing some STR asks for our regular broadcast. Just for those of you who have not listened to STR ask, we'll, you know, be able to benefit from it and say, hey, not bad. We get Amy along with that. So that's a big benefit. So um, now I have a question here that was uh, raised to me by someone who I know uh, who is an ER nurse and has been for quite a while. And of course, you're, if you're in the medical profession, um, you have to face in the last 10, 15 years, especially, and especially the last three or four years, you have to face all kinds of new challenges as a Christian. Now, it used to be the case 10, 15 years ago that the abortion issue, of course, still an issue now, but it was, it was, this was a, this was the uh, watershed issue for doctors. Uh, sometimes the um, euthanasia issue or the de facto euthanasia uh, and doctor-assisted suicide was a factor, but no one was forced to kill another human being in doctor-assisted suicide. That was a choice that doctors made to participate in that. But uh, that's not the case with abortion. And so there were more and more occasions where people who were Christians and pro-life, but in the medical profession, did not want to participate in abortion. And let somebody else do that if if it's legal and they want it, but I'm not going to participate. I'm not going to be a doctor who does it. I'm not going to be a nurse who does this. I'm not going to be anybody who participates in taking the life of another innocent human being. And uh, But things have gotten a little bit more complicated. That issue is still on the table, obviously. And uh, But now we have uh, gender dysphoria. Now we have transsexuals. And now this become a medical issue because more and more 
younger people especially are getting uh are are getting medical treatment uh for sex change now i'm using the phrase because that's the phrase that's used but that thing is not possible it is not possible to change your sex you are born with a sex and every cell in your body dictates it are there some exceptions almost none that's the best way to think about intersex almost none now some people have redefined intersex to include so many things that the, that you know there's there's many intersex people as have red hair i mean this is nonsense this is a distortion of the concepts you go back to the kind of like the intersex organizations that deal with that and the numbers like 0.002% really small okay characteristically normally human beings are binary in their sexuality and that binary sexuality is expressed physiologically all right in their bodies in unambiguous ways even those who are even are genuinely intersex their real sex is usually pretty obvious it just takes a little bit more time to find it a little closer look so to speak i don't mean to make fun of that i'm just saying that when people make this amb- ambiguous they're they're stretching things characteristically human beings are male and female and even to say characteristically is to understate it human beings are male and female just because they're also bipedal they walk on two legs now some babies are born without legs that doesn't mean humans aren't bipedal it means just in very rare circumstances you have a problem okay that in mind uh so so you can't change your sex what you can do is uh have surgical treatment to your body or as some will put it you can mutilate your bodies you can be castrated or you could have your breasts removed you can make your bodies look like another sex in a certain fashion to some degree especially if you take hormones to advance secondary sexual characteristics of either sex but it's you got to keep taking these hormones and it's always fighting your real sex your body is and the problems that are associated that 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 are at the ground of gender dysphoria don't get solved when there are sex change operations all right so uh the suicide rates are still you know skyrocket even in those cases uh there's something terrible that has gone wrong and those people need our love and our compassion and our help not our encouragement down an unhealthy road all right now having said that you may be in a profession a health profession where you have to care for transgenders and that's the circumstance here so i'm just going to read um let's see i'm just going to read the first paragraph this two paragraph question so uh the this writer says i i've been struggling with how to treat trans patients um let's see da, 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 da. oh okay we have quite quite a few of them here in the area where he lives uh they tend to be under 18 most have mental health issues for a variety of reasons my goal is to live and love like jesus to them it's great 
I think truth is important. I think they are confused and su- and supported their confusion by utilizing preferred pronouns is not beneficial to them. I agree. However, this causes a rift almost immediately and prevents any kind of therapeutic interaction. I'm happy to use whatever name they prefer, but I will not call a he a she. They are by far the most challenging patients to deal with, always awkward, and I have yet to come away from an inter- interaction with them, feeling good about the care they received. Maybe that it's not possible with the interpersonal skills that I have or the brief moment of time I have with the patient, but I, I still would like to make it a positive experience. Okay, so um, that's the first issue that he he's bringing up here. And uh, I am really sympathetic to this uh, circumstance. Uh, he is following the guidelines that we have promoted at Stand a Reason regarding this issue, um, and that is to accept the name people choose for themselves. We're talking about adults now. If you're parents with children, um, you can insist on a name that is appropriate for their actual sex slash gender, regardless of what they want. Okay, But when it comes to outsiders dealing with um, folks who are gender dysphoric or transgendered, uh, since names are conventional, that means it's up to the individual, it's up to the culture. Names can go all kinds of ways, and there are a lot of names that don't seem to, that seem to be genderless. In fact, I was just reading through Second Chronicles. Oh, wait, is that right? Or is it First Chronicles? First Chronicles, like the first half of First Chronicles, is all names. It's genealogies. Now, I read them all. Well, they're a bunch of names. Why read that? Because they're in the Word. There's a reason God put them in there, and to some degree, it's just to honor the people and to acknowledge the relationships that the Jews had with each other. You know, I don't know all the reason, but I read it. Half of those names are not pronounceable, and they all have, a lot of times, they have religious connotation, you know. They mean things, you know. They named them this because, oh, life is bitter, so I named my kid bitter, you know, or something like that. The point I'm making is, Names are conventional, all right? So if people choose a name for themselves, we should call them by the name that they choose. It is a matter of choice. Gender slash sex are not conventions. Uh, the gender that you have is the sex that you have. That, that's the way it's supposed to work out. If you have male sexual organs, you're a he. Now, of course, there's lots of controversy about this, but this is not difficult, and it's not rocket science. It's politics that's being foisted upon people who disagree, and they're being punished because they don't go along with this this leftist political notion about gender. And it's everywhere. And that's why you can have a good-hearted person like this nurse who has to care for patients, give them medical care, which there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, if you're a nurse or a doctor, and there is someone who needs medical help, and if you're transgendered, that means you get operations that change the body in some way, then there is going to be medical needs there, okay? And um, and you ought to render medical care to people who have medical needs. Having a sex change operation is not a medical need. So I don't think any Christian should be involved in any way with a sex change operation any more than they should be involved with an abortion. 
it's wrong. It's a mutilation of a perfectly good body for the wrong reasons. This, this, the breast is not cancerous. It's just an aesthetic thing or a personal thing. They want the breast. Look at if if I thought I was a. It's hard. I shouldn't even say this now because in a couple of years this will actually happen. But if I thought I was an, I was an amputee, though I wasn't, would a doctor justify cutting my arms off so that my self concept matched my body? Or if I was anorexic, would would you recommend liposuction because I thought I was fat? No, that's it's obviously no. But why the different standards here? Because of politics. That's why. So I think that medical people should render medical care where medical care is needed. And and irrespective of the circumstances, if they need medical care, fine. Give them what's needed. However, um, having an operation to change your sex is not medical care. There's no medical re- a requirement for that. And it's mutilatory. It's mutilation of the body. And uh, therefore, that it shouldn't be given, in my view. Now, okay, somebody's going to say, well, what about uh, plastic surgery? You get a facelift, or you have your nose changed, or whatever. Well, I have mixed feelings about some of that, but to me, it's in a totally different category. And if somebody can't tell the difference between having a mole removed or a sagging jaw, uh, sagging skin tightened up and removing a penis or cutting breasts off, then I can't have a conversation with that person, all right? There's a big difference. Uh, okay, but there's another question here. There, it's kin. It has to do with homosexuality, all right? Um, and uh, so this Christian brother said, I had an interesting conversation with a college friend. His philosophy is that we should be engaging with all members of the world, which includes going to gay weddings, etc., well, I, I agree with the first thing, engaging in general, in principle, engaging. However, I wouldn't go to a strip club to witness to strippers uh, for a number of reasons, all of which are obvious, I would imagine. Okay. Um, and you, we've talked about gay weddings. A wedding is a celebration. So why would I participate in a celebration of something that is offensive to God, which a gay wedding is, same-sex wedding, really, because it's a violation of God's purposes for marriage? Uh, I, I wouldn't, you know, uh, I mean, I'm trying to think of additional examples, but it's kind of like this. and But I'm stopping myself because I'm thinking, why do we have to come up with other examples like it's kind of like this? Why isn't this just obvious? How can a follower of Jesus celebrate a same-sex marriage? Oh, we want to witness to them. You can witness to them in other circumstances. You don't have to go to the celebration. Okay, but I continue. So this uh, writer's friend says his uh, reason for this was the healing of the centurion's servant. And... uh, the question goes, I'm not sure where he heard this, but he is convinced that the servant was the centurion's gay lover, apparently common at the time. Um, and my response to this is, there's not a shred 
of evidence that that was the case. I don't care if it was common during the time. There's Look at adultery is common nowadays, but that doesn't mean Fred down the street is an adulterer. I, I, it's, it, it's like, huh? That's what I think when I read this line of reasoning. Huh? There was no—certainly the centurion cared about this servant. All right. So— well, it it is it is not uncommon in a culture that is oversexed that whenever it sees the word love, it it reads sex. Erotica. Well, that wasn't the case. Now, when there's erotic things in play, usually it's mentioned the woman caught in adultery, to whom Jesus said, "Go and sin." No more. But uh, in this case, you just have a centurion and his servant who was sick, and he's appealing to Jesus with the confidence that Jesus can heal the servant if he wants, and Jesus does. Now, the 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 note here continues. Now, maybe the servant was gay, or the servant was the centurion's lover and just chose to heal him, which is another great point. Okay, there's no reason to believe that. But even so, if there is a need, Jesus responds to the need and brings the healing, irrespective of the circumstances that brought the need. All right? That doesn't mean that Jesus is affirming the circumstances themselves. Maybe the servant was a gay lover, and Jesus still chose to heal him. Yes, of course. Okay, so what follows from that? It isn't that we should go to gay weddings, right? But that's okay. Um, and then the note continues, I think the purpose of the passage was the centurion's faith and not the object of the healing. Either way, I'm not sure how healing a sexual servant leads to celebrating a non-sanctioned union absolutely correct. I think we should love on the people of the world, invite them to our homes, and go to theirs. However, I'm not sure about attending a wedding. Well, I think your uncertainty is is justified minimally. I'd say, no, you shouldn't. And certainly the circumstance of the centurion being healed has nothing to do with going to gay weddings. Oh, my goodness. So what's going on here? The question now I have is about the friend of the person who raises this issue. What is going on with the friend? Oh, we ought to love everybody, therefore we go to gay weddings? Well, we ought to love everybody, interact with everybody, but that doesn't mean doing everything and affirming everything and going along with everything. Jesus did not do that. Do not uh, how does Paul put it? Participate in the evil deeds of darkness, but even expose them. Is that that's what Paul said? On Jesus' behalf, he says, "Go and sin no more." To the woman uh, caught in adultery in a circumstance that was obviously set up, Jesus found a way around um, the machinations of the Jews. Where was the man? If she was caught in the very act, where's the guy? He's just as guilty. No, it was a setup for the woman. Okay, so Jesus 
is able to uh, defeat the ploy and all of the accusers leave, and since none of the so-called witnesses were there to accuse her, he has no legitimate reason or right, according to the law, to accuse her. He's not a witness. Where's your accusers? They're gone. Neither do I accuse you. Why not? He didn't see anything. But he does say, go and sin no more. So Jesus makes the same kind of assessment and gives the same kind of moral direction. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians 6, makes it clear that many sins are inconsistent with being in the kingdom of God. And among them are sexual sins that are cited there, which include fornication, adultery, and arsenicoites, which is translated in English as homosexual because that's what the word in Greek is referring to, men bedding men, the same kind of language that was used in Leviticus to condemn homosexual behavior. And, uh, and so it, it's not like you know, this is a secret. This is a hard one. Uh, faithfulness on these issues is not theologically complicated, all right? And so I appreciate the note, I appreciate the sentiments, and I'm, I'm totally on board think you're doing a good job, nurse, uh, ER nurse. But it's tough. I get it. And incidentally, when you're using not using preferred pronouns, you're not using preferred pronouns with third-party people, because I mentioned this before, but you don't refer to a transgendered person directly as he. You refer to them as you, not he or her. Um, so the the pronoun use is really a factor with other people, third party, referring to the transgendered individual. And I don't think we should participate in that. The, the, the male is a he, the female is a she. We can use those pronouns. And who, why would they beef about it? Well, I know why, because it's not politically correct. They want, they, they want a horseshoe. Uh, to act as if you believe like they believe, or else they'll punish you. That's the way the left works, okay? And uh, I wrote this in Street Smarts coming out on the chapter dealing with pronouns and stuff like that, gender. But uh, my point here is, and I think I've said it before on the, on the air, at this point with the gender and pronouns, we are not asking people to change their minds. We are Request, requiring that they allow us to keep ours, our convictions. Let us be authentic. Let us be ourselves. Let us follow our own conscience here. But they don't care about conscience. They want the transgender to follow their own authentic self because of what they're following, but they don't want us to follow our own authentic self because it's not about authenticity. It's about something different. All right, let's take a break, and then uh, some open mic calls, and then some Christmas thoughts when we return on Stand of Reason. Friends, if you like this broadcast, I know you'll love Hashtag STRask. It's our shorter 20-minute podcast where I am paired with the wonderful Amy Hall, and together we answer the questions you send us on Twitter. Hashtag STRask is released twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays, and it's only about 20 minutes long, so it's perfect to listen to on your morning jog or while driving around running errands or cleaning your garage or just plain loafing at home. 
Amy and I tackle your questions on theology and ethics and culture and lots more, offering our insight on the questions you're asking or the challenges you face. You can listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your own shows. Just remember, send us your questions on Twitter using the name of the podcast, hashtag STRask. That's hashtag STRask. The pro-life view against abortion involves legal, moral, scientific, and philosophical reasoning. So, why do abortion choice advocates keep insisting that pro-life arguments are religious? Find out the reason in the latest episode of my podcast, Thinking Out Loud with Alan Schleeman. Look for it on iTunes, your favorite podcast app, or at the top of the homepage at str.org. Would you like a Stand to Reason speaker to speak at your church or event? Greg, Alan, Tim, and our newest apologist, John Noyes, are available, both in person and online. Just email booking at str.org to schedule them today. Our speakers can address a wide array of topics, from bioethics, gender issues and science, to theology, philosophy, and how to respond to other worldviews, all from a biblical perspective. Whether it's a Sunday sermon, Zoom conference, or YouTube live event, our skilled and engaging speakers can be there, either physically or virtually, with the goal of equipping Christians to effectively influence the culture for Christ. To read their bios and learn more about the topics they cover, visit str.org. Then email booking at str.org to schedule Greg, Alan, Tim, or John today. Looking around for my notes. I have a small Christmas reflection. I'll have some more at the end of the hour. Excuse me. But I wanted to make an observation that actually occurred to me many, many years ago, soon after I became a Christian. Well, soon. I would say maybe five years after I became a Christian. I'm a Christian almost 50 years, so uh, five years was way back when. And I was at Hope Chapel at Hermosa Beach, and we were uh, caroling. So we were going door to door and singing carols. And uh, I don't know if they really do that much in Southern California. I only did it once, but they do it back in the Midwest. And it's kind of crazy because <laughs> it's cold in Chicago at Christmas time, yet people are all, you know, warmed up. They, got, I mean, they've got all their heavy jackets and their mufflers on and the whole deal. And then they knock on the door and they sing Christmas carols. Then maybe somebody will give them some hot cocoa or whatever, you know, caroling. Do people do that here, Amy, in California? Do you ever hear that? I don't know. Well, anyway, we did it in Southern California, and and something occurred to me uh, that uh, it was as I was singing the songs that I knew, okay, and uh, I knew them because I've been singing them all my life because they are Christmas carols. And I don't, I mean, I mean, like Joy to the World or Hark the Herald Angels Sing or Way in a Manger or Little Tiny of Bethlehem, those ones. I don't mean like uh, Jingle Bells. So we were singing all of the, <clears throat> the Christmas ones, the spiritually relevant ones, the standard ones that many of you sing just this last weekend. You will next weekend too, because Christmas is on a Sunday. But I, I think <clears throat> it's curious, and this is what occurred to me, that, um, there's one season every year where millions of people 
without theological conviction, extol the virtues of Jesus in a theologically precise and deep way. When I was in church on Sunday, uh, this was their Christmas celebration Sunday, a week before, and uh, so we sang some of those Christmas hymn carols type thing, and I found myself just caught up in the profundity of the lyrics. Okay, no matter what, it doesn't matter what song you have, I don't have any in front of me here, I'm not going to sing one right now, but you think of these lyrics. These lyrics are profound. They are theologically substantive, okay? And, um, I mean, in English, at least, uh, the Western world is singing these. Even people who are atheists, you know, caught up in the uh, spirit, so to speak, of the moment, or rather of the season. And uh, I, I was not a Christian. I, I guess I was raised in a kind of Christian tradition, so to speak, in my own community, but uh, there was a religiosity of sorts, but I wasn't a believer. I wasn't a regenerate follower of Christ. But now I am, and I'm singing the song, and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, OMG, you know? <laughs> this is cool. And uh, And people, I've been singing this all my life, and I have never thought about it. Um, and, and I did it with vigor, just like other people do. Hark the herald, you know. Um, but sometimes, um, people don't realize what they're singing, and even Christians don't pay attention to the words. And so here I was, like, like I said, five years in the Lord, and I, I, I stopped singing those songs, um, What's the right word? Like automatically, or in, in uh, 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 just uh, there's a word that I'm looking for. I can't find it, but just like by rote, just singing the music. And I started thinking, wait a minute, I believe this stuff. I've been living it for five years, and now I'm just kind of really thinking about these words surreptitiously. Was that the word I was looking for? And uh, so it's not just the world extolling Christ in theologically precise and deep ways. It's Christians extolling Christ in theologically deep and precise ways, and they are not even thinking about what the words are that they're using. Now, there is a dark side to this reflection, and the dark side is this, that so many of those who sang praises to or regarding Christ insofar as they're repeating the lyrics of these songs at Christmas time, so many of those will stand before him, that one who was the babe in the manger, who was the Son of God, Emmanuel, God with us, God came down, the rescuer. He came as the the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, he will return as the Lion of the tribe of Judah, and he will be the one before whom people will stand and be judged. And that picture will not be pretty, and it will not be joyful, joy to the world, right? It will be terrifying. And I guess what wonders here, and this is what I was wondering when this reflection occurred to me, if when that happens, there will be a moment of ironic insight, 
as they think it was all right there. Christmas time, the carols, the words were on my very own lips. It was so clear. It was so vivid. It was so profound. It was all there, and I missed it. Or maybe, be better to say, and I ignored it, as the case may be. Anyway, just a reflection. All right, let's go to um, one of our open mic calls. And once again, you can call that in or go. The, actually, the best way to do it, and uh, this is what I encourage people to do, is go to our website, okay, to our homepage, then look at the, for the podcast and the live broadcast, and you can just push the button. That, that actually produces the best sound for us. It's the best uh, production quality, easiest way to leave these kinds of calls. So let's go to uh, Paul in Vancouver. Paul, what's on your mind? Hello, this is Paul in Vancouver. I was wondering what you do when you have to go beyond the proof text, such as we were doing a study with the perseverance of the saints, or once saved, always saved. There was multiple verses on each side and some debate whether they really applied to the subject. But in the end, both were forceful. So the person took the very first four points of the Arminian-Calvin debate to come to a conclusion in the same way, sometimes with the Trinity, there's no proof text, but we can reach a conclusion by looking at verses or the nature of Jesus, his two natures. Do you have any framework of how you do that? Hmm. Thank you very much. God bless. Yeah. Merry Christmas. Oh, thank you, Paul, and happy Christmas to you. And I, I do have uh, an idea about that. Now, this has to do with hermeneutics, like how do you understand the Scripture? How do you approach How do you learn what the writer intended? And, of course, in this circumstance, it's not what the writer intended, but what the writers intended, because what you have is you have verses from different places that, that seem to say different things. Okay, and there was a uh, a reference to the perseverance of the saints. Some refer to this as once saved, always saved. That would be a way of characterizing or eternal security. Uh, there's one theological way of thinking that I think narrows it down a little bit more and says, if you're really a Christian, you're going to stay a Christian. And that's what the phrase perseverance of the saints. The saints, the real Christians, do persevere to the end. They don't fall away. Okay, but how, how do you how how do you kind of pull this all together? Now, on that particular issue, I'll mention something about the Trinity in a moment, but on that particular issue, I think part of the challenge is that um, you have verses that seem to suggest that you can lose your salvation, you can be a Christian, and then uh, unbe a Christian, <laughs> okay? That whole thing is reversible. You can be regenerate, and then you can get unregenerate, like you had been in the past. And others will say, no, if you, once you become regenerate, that's a miracle that changes you, and true regeneration is irreversible. That's my view. Okay. But but the difficulty, of course, is you have verses that seem to support either side, and it can't be both, and it can't be neither. It's one or the other. So which one is it? How do you figure this out? And my recommendation is that you look, you, you somehow or other, assemble the relevant verses on either side. 
All right. Different ways to do that. And lots of the relevant verses are fairly well known on this particular issue. Okay. And and then you have to then you have to look at these verses and ask about clarity. Are these verses, or do they seem to be, when taken within their context, unambiguous and univocal, like speaking very clearly with a one voice? This verse looks like it can mean one thing and only one thing. That's univocal as opposed to being equivocal. That's what we ask. We ask that question, first of all, because there are some verses that seem to support one view, but when you look closely, you think, well, that verse doesn't actually say that view clearly. It's a way to take what's going on, but there's some ambiguity there in the passage itself. So you got to be careful about those. You want to get the ones that are seen to be the clearest that to support one side or the other. And then when you look at these verses that seem to be clear for one side or the other, you might take stock of how many there are. And like maybe on one side or the other, you have more verses that are clear, okay? Then there's another step that's involved, uh, and that is, is it possible that this verse that seems to be clear for one view can actually be understood in light of the other view? It can be incorporated in the other view, and vice versa. You want to look at both sides. Now, I hold to the perseverance of the saints, because when I look at these passages, the ones that say that you are rescued for good and forever seem to be univocal to me, unequivocal. They are really clear and straightforward, and it's hard to take them in any other way. But I look at some of the other verses that seem to suggest the other, uh, the other case— that you can lose your salvation, if so to speak. And it just doesn't seem to me that some of these verses are obviously teaching that, for one. Hebrews 6 is one passage that comes to mind. Oh, this is kind of like, could be this, could be that. Um, and and uh, the other thing is, some of these verses that seem to be support this side, I can understand them in a legitimate take on them, in a way that does not uh, disagree with perseverance of the saints. Now, I'm just using my own view as an example of how I went through the process. I'm not trying to persuade you one way or another. I want you to see the process, okay? you got to kind of do your best to weigh all of these other things. There's one other detail, though, that's involved, and it's not just looking at proof texts. What I just described is a way of assessing... um, things based on the proof text, as it were. But there's another element, and the other element is the theology, okay? So when it comes to the question of salvation, I have to try to look not so much at statements one way or another, but what the the teaching of Scripture is on the nature of salvation and regeneration. And it's, it's as I'm looking less at the proof text and more at the work of salvation. What happens when we put our trust in Christ, what transformation of any that's involved, what um, reckoning then God has of us as a result, um, 
and whether it seems that that whole thing can be reversed, this is where I come to a conclusion based on the theology now, not so much the proof text. Of course, there are texts involved in the theology, but I'm looking at the texts that relate to the nature of the cross and the nature of salvation, not just proof texts that individually say you can lose or you can't lose your salvation. When I look at the work of the cross, this is what convinces me more than anything that this is a... uh, that this is a, a a process that's irreversible. So actually, you have two different mech, uh, not mechanisms, but techniques, tools, if you will, that you have re- recourse to to help deal with controversial issues when it seems you have texts on both sides. One, you look at the texts and then see which ones are most clear and also weigh whether some of the Opposing texts can be integrated, in your view, in a legitimate way, given the verse. That's one side. That's the proof text side. The other thing is you can look at the theology, okay, and then see, does the, the trying to unwrap the theology that's developed on this issue, if that helps you to understand um, the answer to the question. Now, the issue of the Trinity came up, too, and that's a little bit different, because that's not— simply proof texting, because when you when you proof text, you find different things. For example, you find, looking at the text, well, there's one God. Well, that's pretty clear. Um, but then you look at other texts and say, oh, well, the Father's God. Yeah, that's clear. But so is Jesus. How do we know that? Well, because he's called God, actually, and called Lord, which is an uh, it, the way it's being used in the New Testament is an ascription of deity, uh, and he receives worship without embarrassment, doesn't correct people who actually worship him as divine. They're not just bowing down and genuflecting in a in a polite fashion, you know, how sometimes we'll bow. No, this was on their face worshiping. Huh. Well, you can only do that with God. Uh, we also have Jesus being the one who created everything that was ever created, so... Um, that's in John 1, 3. So he wasn't created. If he's uncreated, then that means he's God. So, and you have similar kind of circumstances with the Holy Spirit. So what do we, and the, and the Father and the Son are different, and the Spirit. At Jesus' baptism, there's Jesus, and then the Father's speaking, the Spirit's hovering. So they interact with each other in, in ways that show the distinction between their persons. So now we've got, oh man, what a mess. That's why I call the Trinity a solution, not a problem. Because the solution affirm I mean, the Trinity affirms that there is one God who is God in nature. But the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are distinct in their persons, but they are all share the same single nature of God, the divine nature. So it's one what and two and three who's, or God with three centers of consciousness as essential as part of his nature. Okay, now that's weird, I admit, but it's not contradictory, because the way in which he is one is different from the way in which he is three. If we said one God and three gods, that's contradictory. If we said one person and three persons, that's contradictory. If we said one God in three persons, that's not a contradiction, it's just odd, because God's odd. He's not like anything else or anyone else, okay? 
So notice what the early church did is they took these facts of Scripture and they they formed a, a way of understanding the nature of God that took all of these Scriptures and brought them together in harmony. So they are not faced with contradiction when they have a high view of Scripture. Now, again, this is an internal discussion. It's what Christians believe based on Revelation. If you're not a Christian, all I need to be able to show you is it's not contradictory. All right? So you can't disqualify it in virtue of contradiction. Now, it's, it, 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 but if, you're, if you hold to Scripture like LDS uh, or uh, Mormon Friends or Jehovah's Witnesses or other groups, uh, Oneness Pentecostals, well, here I, now there's a difference of opinion about how this all trades out, but there's only one view that avoids contradiction, and that's the Trinitarian view. If you don't go with the Trinity, <clears throat> you're, going to, uh, you're going to have contradictions. There's no way out of that one, okay? And this is why I say the Trinity is a solution and not a problem. Now, there's there's another element here that I want to bring in that has to do with, um, you know, figuring things out in Scripture, and especially when you have a number of different Scriptures that speak to an issue. So, um, how is it that we can come up with what might be called a balanced view? And when I say balance here, I don't mean a little bit of this and a little bit of that. So you have, you know, a little bit of law and a little bit of grace, and then, you know, the two are equal amounts, and they balance each other. That's not the kind of balance I, I mean, and that's actually an inappropriate that is, That's an unbalanced view. I am talking about balance that has to do with the the, the whole counsel of God informing our view on something. And in fact, I just did that with the Trinity. How do we get an understanding of what Scripture, writ large, uh, teaches about the nature of God in light of the Father, Son, and Spirit's presence in Scripture? All right, well, how are you going to figure that out? You can't figure it out by looking at a verse. Here is Jesus praying to the Father. Yep. So Jesus is not the Father, our Jehovah's Witnesses friend will point out. Yep, we agree with that. Well, you think Jesus is God? Yes. Then Jesus is the Father? No. Our definition of the Trinity is that the Father and Jesus are distinct from each other, though they share the same divine essence. Now, of course, that doesn't make it true, but it's just clarity on what we hold. Okay, so what our attempt to do is to look at all of these verses that have to do with God, the verses about the Holy Spirit, the verses about Jesus, the verses about the Father, and then what the Old Testament says about God, called the Father in the New Testament, and trying then getting all of these verses and then trying to make a draw a conclusion based on all of these verses. Okay. What is the whole counsel of God? And this is where you come up with the Trinity, because this is what holds everything together in a unity. This makes sense of all of these passages. Okay, uh, let's take the issue of um, hearing the voice of God. You know, uh, uh, this I did. You know, many of you know my view on this. I'm concerned about this practice, and that we te- people teach about learning to hear the voice of God. And so I went to the book of Acts, and I thought, I want to see what the book of Acts has to say about this, because that's a place people say where God's always talking, doing these miraculous things, showing people where to go and what to do, and we ought to do the same thing as they did. Well, I went through, and I read the whole book of Acts, 
every verse, and I, I took every occasion where uh, God gives some kind of divine direction. Hey, you guys do this. Well, it happens 13 times in the book of Acts, or maybe 14 times, not counting the before, that's from Pentecost on. So they cast lots there in the beginning. I don't count that. From Pentecost on, the New Testament economy, 14 times in, what, uh, 35 years. That's it. Or 30 years. It's it's not very much. And, in fact, I quantified all this. I put it on our website. It's called uh, Supernatural Guidance in the Book of Acts or something like that. And there I itemized each one of those cases, and here's what's happening, and here's the manifestation. When I did that, I found out a bunch of stuff that nobody is guided by God in the book of Acts by nudge, nudge, hint, hint. That when God shows up and gives special direction, it's rare, and it's almost always supernatural. Now, some occasions we don't have the details. We have one place where the first missionary journey is commissioned, and uh, it says there were disciples who were there with prophets, and then the Holy Spirit said, set apart Saul and Barnabas. Well, gee, how did the Holy Spirit say that? Well, it says it's got prophets there. That's probably what happened. Okay. Another text says the Spirit was not allowing us to go into Asia. It doesn't say the phenomenology of that, but nevertheless, that's what the text says. So, uh, wow, I discovered all of this so I could have a balanced view. I get the full picture of Scripture by going to all the verses pertaining to the issue. And that's the way to do that hermeneutically, in my humble opinion. I could talk more about that, but I do want to, since this is, uh, we're almost done here with our show, there's two things I want to read to you that I usually read at Christmas time. There are older articles that I've um, grabbed, and one of them, they're just great reflections and uh, some things that you may not have thought about. Uh, for example, the Two of the most significant movies around Christmas time is some form of the Christmas Carol and Scrooge, and another which is the, um, the the Wonderful Life. It's a Wonderful Life, and it's a wonderful movie. Okay, so here's a piece written by Andrew Clavin, and actually goes back. I got my date in two thousand three, so that's twenty years ago, uh, or more, almost twenty years ago. But he's reflecting on something and a contrast between a contrast and similarity between these two movies. I just want you to think about it, okay? So let me read what he says. He said, One thing that's always struck me about these two films is that they're essentially mirror images of each other. In Scrooge, a man grown rich because of heart shriveling greed is forced by spirits to view the consequences of his existence. In It's a Wonderful Life, George Bailey, a man in financial trouble because of his large-souled uh, generosity, by contrast, of course, is forced by an angel to view the consequences of his non-existence, what would have happened if he'd never been born. On both sides of the mirror, the results are the same, revolutionary personal transformation, what the New Testament calls metanoia, which is often translated repentance, but which means literally a change of mind. After the metanoia, there's a lot of Christmas caroling and happiness and that sort of thing. Thus, movie critics who frequently confuse darkness with depth sometimes belittle these films as sentimental. They're wrong. Watched carefully, the films are disturbingly realistic because for each protagonist, the change in outlook has absolutely nothing to do with the change in circumstance. Wow. 
good observation. They aren't singing carols and so forth because they've won the girl or beaten the villain or made millions or righted wrongs. Scrooge can never bring justice to the people he's ruined, and Bailey will never become the world-traveling architect he wanted to be. And yet, in the aftermath of their visions, both men are joyous. Joyous. I, I don't deserve to be so happy, Scrooge mutters, but I can't help it. And Bailey lets out a heartful yay when the angel returns him to the dreary town that has been the graveyard of his ambitions. Scrooge and George Bailey, uh, Andrew Clavin closes here, in traveling through misery to see the eternal born in time, are descendants of those wise men who traveled through the wilderness to see God born in history. To such a vision, amid failure and sin, and even in the face of death, there is only one response. Yay! Nicely done, Andrew. The other thing I want you to think about here, just in the waning moments of the last show of the year and just before Christmas, if you're listening to this when we send it out, it's a piece by, uh, it's actually Cal Thomas who, who wrote a piece reflecting on something on Harry Reasoner, uh, published on Christmas Eve, 1973. That was the year I became a Christian. So this goes way back. And here's what Harry Reasoner has to say. Christmas is such a, um, a unique idea that most non-Christians accept it, and I think sometimes envy it. If Christmas is the anniversary of the appearance of the Lord of the universe in the form of a helpless baby, well, it's quite a day. It's a startling idea, and the theologians who sometimes love logic more than they love God find it uncomfortable. But if God did do it, he had tremendous insight. People are afraid of God and standing in his very bright light, but everyone has seen babies and almost everyone likes them. So if God wanted to be loved as well as feared, he moved correctly here. And if he wanted to know people as well as rule them, well, he moved correctly because a baby growing up learns all there is to know about people. And if God wanted to be intimately a part of man, well, he moved correctly. For the experience of birth and familyhood is our most intimate and precious experience. So it comes beyond logic, Harry Reasoner writes here. It's what a bishop I used to know called a kind of divine insanity. It is either all falsehood, or it is the truest thing in the world. And here Reasoner is kind of reflecting something that Lewis has said, too. It's either irrelevant, or it's the most relevant thing. It's, it's either completely unimportant or of supreme importance. Reasoner goes on, it is the story of the great innocence of God, the baby, God in the power of man. And it is such a dramatic shot toward the heart that if it is not true for Christians, nothing is true. And yes, that's the case. So he closes, even if you did not get your shopping all done, and I haven't, <laughs> and you are swamped with the commercialism and the frenzy, be at peace. And even if you are the deacon having to arrange 
the extra seating for all the Christmas Christians that you won't see until Easter. Be at peace. The story stands. It's all right that so many Christians are touched only once a year by this incomparable story, because some final quiet Christmas morning the touch will take. Well, the touch took for me almost 50 years ago, and even in the midst of the chaos of this season, which we all get caught up in to some measure, there is still a bright shining star in the midst of it. Stars, Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, God come down to rescue us. Unfathomable thought, but so true. And now we celebrate that this weekend. And I trust and pray, Lord, that for those, my friends who listen, that weekend celebration and that celebration on Christmas Day would be rich and sweet and draw them close to you. Happy Christmas to all and to all. A good night. Greg Kokel here for Stand to Reason. Give them heaven. Bye-bye.